This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity Mates, episode 31. Great to be back as always. Uh, very excited to be here. Uh, it's been another good weekend here up in Sydney. Um, as always, I'm joined with my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, Ro? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh, it's been a pretty chilly weekend down here in Melbourne. Uh, but what better weekend to settle down inside with a cracking podcast. Exactly. And don't we have that episode for you? <laughs> yeah, very excited about this one. Yes, this one um, we've ha- had in the pipeline for a while and we were lucky to sit down with Wayne Swan last week and discuss about uh, what themes um, and predictions are coming in 2018 from his point of view. He's just about to write or he's probably finished uh, an essay about what is to come in 2018 from an economic point of view. Uh, so we were lucky enough to uh, go through a few of the things that he discussed. Uh, so for those that are unaware, Wayne Swan is an Australian politician. Uh, he was actually the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and the Deputy deputy Leader of the Labor Party from 2010 to 2013. And he was also the Treasurer of Australia from 2007 to 2013. So he has a wealth of experience um, and we were able to pick his brains about everything from the GFC in 2009 and uh, how he handled that as the Treasurer of Australia um, through to what we think or what he thinks is going to come in 2018. So it was a very enjoyable conversation. Would you agree, Ren? Yeah, definitely. Uh, We should note that we tried to bait him into making a big prediction uh, with our first question and he he (laughs) shot it down straight away. Uh, So listen out for that. (laughs) Um, But no, listen to uh, his take on some really interesting topics from China to Bitcoin, uh, Mm. from Australian housing to uh, income inequality. And Mm. right at the end, uh, I know we're a little bit too late for this, but he makes a prediction about Barnaby Joyce. So (laughs) we should have released it earlier this week, I'm thinking. I know, damn. (laughs) Anyway, so we're excited to bring this one to you guys. is before we get stuck in, do you want to mention anything else, Ren? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, the annual Warren Buffett letter to shareholders was released overnight. Huge. Yeah, and <laughs> it's obviously a big deal for investors to read what the great man himself is thinking. So, you don't have to find it yourselves. We're going to be including it as the first link in Thought Starters tomorrow morning. So, yeah. uh, if you're listening to this, make sure you sign up to Thought Starters. If you're listening to this and it's past Monday, you can check out old editions of Thought Starters at equitymates.com slash thoughtstarters, uh, where you can read Warren Buffett's 2017 letter and a lot of other interesting articles. And for those that are new to the show, Ren, um, welcome. And also, can you just give a brief rundown on what Thought Starters is? Yes. Yeah, so Thought Starters is a weekly email to your inbox of five interesting and thought-provoking articles uh, that are loosely based on investing. So yeah. uh, they're not always you know, going to be finance heavy. They're just going to be things that have taken our interest and things that we hope will get you thinking. Nice. And uh, that comes out every Monday. Yeah. And you can, so sign, get on you it. can sign up on our website, on our social media, 
Just uh, equitymates.com slash thought starters. See some old editions. If you like what you're reading, uh, you can sign up on that page as well. Done. All right. Well, without any further ado, uh, here is our interview with uh, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and Australian Treasurer, Wayne Swan. So, Wayne, there's a lot of talk as we come into 2018 about an overheated market, and we're hearing comparisons to a number of historic bubbles, uh, notably the 2008 bubble and the lead-up to the GFC. Given you were the Treasurer of Australia um, during the GFC, are you seeing any similarities between uh, then and now, and do you think we're likely to see a correction or a crash this year? Well, I I think those sort of uh, predictions are all irresponsible. Uh, global growth has been anemic for years and years. Uh, this year, it's forecast to get back to you know an average that we would have expected uh, prior to the Great Recession. Uh, what you're seeing in the global economy now for the first time since 2007 is two of the very big engines of the global economy that have been misfiring for the last uh, six or seven years, notably the United States and Europe, now firing. So we've got much more balanced growth uh, in the global economy, uh, more balanced than we've seen at any time since the Great Recession or what we call the global financial crisis, because through the crisis and coming out of that crisis, global growth was largely driven uh, by the developing world, uh, plus little old Australia. So it's good to see uh, global growth uh, more broadly based uh, than it has been really, any time since uh, the global financial crisis. Now, whilst it's true uh, that you've got, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, frenzied activity uh, in the stock markets, which, you know, doesn't necessarily reflect the underlying fundamentals, uh, but, you know, that happens pretty frequently, as you'd you'd well be aware. But the underlying fundamentals here uh, are that global growth is getting back to what you'd call around trend levels or maybe a bit above. Uh, my own view is that the threats to that are not as much economic as geopolitical. Uh, but there is, I think, one big policy threat, and this is the, this is the, the issue uh, which is driving the US dollar down at the same time as exuberance is um, driving stock prices up, and that is the adverse uh, market reaction uh, to um, to Trump's um, uh, tax cuts, which many in the financial markets are seeing uh, that as uh, being akin to throwing petrol on a fire. So you've got the US not at full employment but approaching it. There's still a degree of slack uh, in their labour market, but they've done pretty well, and they ought to because they've been on their knees for so long. Um, but many people fear the impact uh, of those tax cuts uh, blowing out US budget deficits. So responsible investors around the world, policymakers and central banks are looking a bit aghast that the United States, when it finally gets close to full employment at the end of 2000 and, and, and uh, after what occurred in the end of 2007, throws a bit of petrol on the fire and gives a massive unfunded tax cut. Uh, with all of the ramifications that could flow from that in the future. So that, I think, uh, is a warning signal, which you're seeing in the decline in the US dollar, that uh, that markets are pretty apprehensive 
about what they see as, as a large unfunded tax cut, uh, which is the last thing, uh, which is a stimulus and the last thing that the US economy needs at the moment, given the state of its budget. Yeah, definitely. And look, we want to we wanna touch on tax cuts a little bit more, um, and especially tax cuts in an Australian context a little bit later. But t- picking sure. up on something you said uh, in your answer there, when you talked about how it took 10 years for global growth to pick up after the uh, financial crisis, what, what do you think were the drivers of that? And why, why do you think it took so long for growth to come back to the developed world? Well, the reluctance uh, of policymakers uh, to use uh, fiscal policy uh, to, uh, to uh, revive growth in a world which had been uh, scared and uh, uh, uncertain about the future. So what you've witnessed around the world through much of that period is, you know, what um, Larry Summers, I suppose, has called uh, secular stagnation. That is uh, a huge pile of private savings uh, which has simply been sitting there and hasn't been invested. And that what that required was active uh, steps uh, by uh, responsible authorities across the developed world to have a stronger fiscal policy. In the absence of that stronger fiscal policy, growth remained anemic, unemployment around the world remind, remained high, uh, and we saw unnecessary capital and skill destruction, particularly in the United States, but also across many other countries. And had governments moved, then Reserve Bank governors would not have had to have taken uh, such extraordinary uh, steps as they have in monetary policy. So essentially, they were backed into a corner by the reluctance of governments, driven largely by futile um, survival of the fittest uh, Tea Party ideology, uh, to uh, not make the necessary investments they needed in their economies to kickstart, if you like, investments. So I think, you know, one of the great tragedies of, of um uh, of, of uh, the global economy has been the reluctance of responsible authorities to borrow money very cheaply to invest in the future of their economies and in particular in the future of the productive capacity through investment, particularly in physical infrastructure, but also human infrastructure. So you mentioned there uh, what the reserve banks around the world did in response to the crisis and, and in many cases they filled the void of um, government spending, as you said, with uh, with quantitative easing, where they pumped money into uh, markets and into assets, uh, and then also with record low interest rates. We're, we're only just coming out of that period 10 years after the JFC. Do you worry that the Reserve Banks don't have a lot of powder dry if something was to happen again? Well, I, I think it is a legitimate concern. Of, co- of course it is. Um, you know, and you've only got to pick up any piece of economic commentary to, commentary to see that reflected. It's just that's not the fault uh, of the central banks. Um, so we've got to keep our fingers crossed that, um, that all is well. So you see, the other concerning issue um, is also related to the United States because um, the unregulated market that led to the global financial crisis and the Great Recession uh, which was re-regulated during this period, is, is about to be or, or is currently in the process of being unregulated yet again. So you see Dodd-Frank um, under the gun uh, in the US uh, and a lot of rhetoric about uh, loosening uh, regulations in, across all areas of the financial sector. I was very much associated in my time as Treasurer with um, all of the actions taken through the Financial Stability Board and others over time you know, to put in place a whole new regulatory framework, which has only just been completed largely in the last 12 months 
to see now Donald Trump trying to pull it apart. And that's very concerning as well. Wayne, we understand you're in the process or potentially have finished writing an essay about what's to come in 2018. Alec and I did an episode a couple of weeks ago uh, about this, and we had a punt at a few things and uh, sort of predictions of our own, Alex being that Amazon will be all huff and no puff. And I put on a case of I put on a case of beer with him that 15th of September we'll see a 20% drop in the US stock market. Now I don't know if you've included them in your essay or not, but um, what I wasn't are... going to be that specific. <laughs> <laughs> no, um... I, I would hope that on the 15th of September, which is the 10th anniversary of the uh, uh, of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, that we we see a lot of uh, studious reflection on what went wrong then, and stop <laughs> starting to repeat the mistakes that actually caused it. <laughs> I, would, I would agree. Um, so, what are some of the main predictions or themes that you see playing out over 2018 from a political, uh, sorry, a an economic point of view? Oh, I think uh, it's now much more greatly appreciated around the world amongst policymakers. And increasingly so, whether you're dealing with, you know, the governor of the Bank of England, uh, Christine Lagarde uh, from the IMF, or whether you're dealing increasingly with senior business leaders um, like Jeff Ebel from GE or Larry Fink, uh, who spoke out the other day, that unless we're serious uh, with structural reforms that do something about the growing levels of and concentration of income and wealth in the hands of a few, then it's hard to see. Uh, how the global economy is going to get ahead of steam. The issue uh, in terms of global growth that most people focus on is, you know, well, what, what's going to happen in China? And I think there is one thing that is different about China now uh, than we've seen in recent years, and that is they are now, I think, quite serious uh, about doing something in their financial system uh, uh, and at the same time attending to, you know, excessive credit, bad loans, uh, and so on, uh, they're doing something much more serious about environmental pollution. The two things combine, combined, and the Reserve Bank pointed to this in the statement of monetary policy, two things combined mean that growth in China isn't going to collapse, but will certainly probably be a little lower uh, than it has been uh, for, uh, for some time. So that mighty engine of China, which has driven, still drives, I think, up to about a third of global growth, you know, will be attending to its long-term challenges much more seriously. Someone said to me who I was talking to, and I spent a lot of time in China. I spent a lot of time with the um, uh, with the current governor who's been there for a while, uh, a very, a very good public servant, that uh, this time it appears they're not going to kick the can down the road and they are much more serious about dealing with their issues of bad debt, uh, bad loans, uh, and, and washing that out of the system. So. That's one thing. The other thing is that you know the, the the pattern that we've seen of an increasing concentration of wealth in the developed world and the hollowing out of the middle classes and the creation of vast armies of the working poor is now a pattern which, which is beginning uh, to replicate itself uh, in those that have been the beneficiaries of global growth over the last 30 years, namely the developing world where millions of people at the bottom have been lifted out of poverty and, the start, and, and middle classes have been created. But we're now starting to see in those countries uh, uh, the beginnings of a replication of the inequality that we've seen across the developed world. Um, the economics of, of inequality are well known to everyone. I mean, if you provide a shrinking percentage of um, GDP to the people who actually do most of the consumption, 
Well, the economics of that are pretty horrible uh, for economic growth um, into the future. So I think two things stand out. China dealing with its challenges, which is good for everybody, and hopefully doing it in a way which is not disruptive to the enormous contribution they make to the global economy. But secondly, recognising the time has come uh, for the developed world to, um, you know, to, to deal with the poison of trickle-down economics uh, and put in place a more balanced set of structural reform uh, which will drive growth uh, sustainably uh, into the future. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mm. They're, they're both big topics, and we definitely want to unpack both of them uh, in a bit more detail. But to start with uh, economic inequality... So you talked about uh, de- the developed world needing to put in place structural reforms. Do you have any particular reforms in mind? And are there any countries uh, that are doing particularly well that you think Australia uh, and the rest of the developed world can model themselves on? Well, the rest of the world used to model ourselves themselves, used to look to Australia as having a good recipe for that, but we've started to ape their, <laughs> their, their policies, which deliver inequality. But... Um, Look, there's two things that stand out amongst a whole series of structural reforms that are required to deal with uh, growing inequality of income and wealth. First one is a return to progressive taxation and a rejection of the, of, of regressive taxation, which has taken hold across the developed world, uh, and putting putting some real progressive tax measures into the system uh, so that you can drive the investment that's required in the public goods that make the economy go round. Uh, secondly doing something about the voice of labour and making sure that um, that uh, that working people have got a degree of bargaining power. They're the two big ones that stand out, both of which won't work unless something unless you have accompanying political reforms. And the political reforms that are needed to accompany that is doing something about the power of big money in democratic politics. Because if you don't do anything about the power of big money in democratic politics, you don't you you, you will continue to get labour being squashed. Uh, and uh, and tax systems made more regressive. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, and it's an argument that a lot of people make, and it's something that I'm very receptive to about the power of money in politics. What what I haven't heard uh, is is a model of what would work in terms of you know publicly funded elections or limiting spending, but then finding a way to not have you know the super PACs that seem to emerge in America. What, what well, would your, yeah, what would your model look like? Well, there, there are very obvious things, some of which we already have here. First of all, one vote, one value, which doesn't exist in the United States. Uh, secondly, compulsory voting, uh, which doesn't exist in the United States. Uh, thirdly, some, some real laws with teeth, teeth uh, that, uh, that control the power of big money and how it is spent in elections. I mean, and, and we've got to do a lot more here now, our, our system work for a while and, and constrained it. It doesn't do it to the extent it should. We've had public disclosure, but people are working their way around it. Britain's got some pretty effective laws about um, 
about donations and spending uh, in in elections. Um, but at the core of what's going wrong in the United States is 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 the the rampant gerrymanders that you know make you know, make make the notion of one vote one value laughable. Uh, that's a big in 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 that country. Compulsory voting, I'm sure, is not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it certainly draws your political system to the centre, uh, whereas a voluntary system of voting pulls it to to its edges, both left uh, and right. Uh, and then campaign reform, but there are other big big areas that are, are just and, and increasingly important. Media reform. Um, you know, they used to call the media the fourth estate for a very good reason. It was very powerful and it was seen as independent and it was an effective transmission mechanism to tell fact from fiction. Uh, and increasingly, you know, the way in which technology has disrupted traditional media, uh, the ownership of traditional media itself, uh, the emergence of social media and, and the way it applies, uh, that, that transmission mechanism in modern democracies is broken. Um, and there has to be a lot of discussion about how that is, uh, how that is attended to. Do you, do you think that's a case of uh, government reform and government regulation being able to solve that problem? Or do you think that's... Uh... Well, it's not, no. it's not, not all a question for government, just as the economy is not a question just about government spending. I mean, I, I happen to think, you know, in this country, much of the challenges we've got in the economic system are, uh, isn't a question necessarily of the size of government. It's a question of the ethics, morality and um, operation of the private sector. Yeah. Okay. So turning to the second, um, second big theme that you raised, which was China. So obviously, um, since well, prior to 2008, we, um, you know, China bought a lot of our minerals and that, uh, has seen, uh, Australia's mining boom, uh, take us through a pretty turbulent period in, uh, global economics. Do you, do you worry that, uh, this, uh, internal reform that China's going through and the economic slowdown that might result uh, do you worry about the second-order effects that that will have on the Australian economy? Uh, not especially. Um, and by the way, China didn't take us through the global financial crisis. Um, the, the mining boom that came along uh, didn't really surface until the end of 2009, early 2010. It's certainly along with our stimulus and its tail buttressed us from uh, the um, uh, the real shakiness and uh, and and um, uh, tremors that were going through the global economy right through 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. Uh, so it was certainly valuable uh, from that point of view. Uh, but the Australian economy is much bigger than mining. Um, you wouldn't think it the way in which people talk about the economy, but we're a very big um, services economy, you know, the 12th or 13th largest economy in the world. Um, and it is true that uh, China's a very big, uh, bigger now um in our economy, but China's very big in everyone's economy. <laughs> so, yes, it's important for us. And, yes, we're very lucky. We've got uh, many of the high-grade uh, commodities that, that they need, uh, and that, that, that puts the icing on the top for Australia. But it's not the be-all and end-all uh, of our economy. Um, they realise, like we realise, that the future of their economy lies in going up the value-added scale, lies invest in investing in their people and in technology. Uh, and, and it's how we manage that transition and how China manages that transition that's critical for all of the economies in our region. I mean, I'm up talking in Indonesia uh, next Monday, and um, you know the real the real question is as China goes up the value added scale and 
uh, where, 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 where many of those lower skilled manufacturing uh, operations go, um, how other countries in the region tap into an expanding services sector, all of those things are quite complex, and not just in a question of Australia-China. It's a question of China and the rest of the world of which Australia is part. Wayne, another theme of 2018 that we have been discussing on the show is obviously the Australian housing market and, well, more specifically, Sydney and Melbourne um, and how there's a lot of commentary at the moment about the fact that it's quite overheated and we're starting to see a bit of reversal in prices. And with the potential for interest rate rises over the next 12 months and revelations about mortgage fraud and liar loans and those sorts of things, do you have a, a view on where the Australian market might be heading over the next 12 or 24 months? It desperately needs the, ref the reforms that we um, have argued for in, a, in the last election. Um, you know, it, it's been pumped up too much by uh, uh, by uh, leveraged investment in housing uh, via negative gearing, and um, you know, that's not that's not been healthy for the sector or really for the Australian economy in the long run. So, you know, but but many many of these price increases and so on have been a feature of an economy that's had a, a uh, steady growth. I, I think our economy should have grown much more strongly in the last two or three years than it has, given how low the dollar has been uh, and given our relatively low interest rates compared to just about anywhere in the world. They're, they're two very big stimuluses, a lower, a lower dollar and, lo and low interest rates, uh, both of which weren't available to me when I was treasurer, even at the height of the global financial crisis. So there's been, um, there's been stimulus there, which we've not, I, I think, Effectively managed, uh, and and we needed um, we needed much more investment in our critical economic infrastructure, and less in uh, less in parts of the housing sector. But the incentives have been all wrong, and they still need to be fixed. So one of the hot topics of 2017 was obviously Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency markets. So going into 2018, it seems that a number of governments are starting to step in and regulate it a bit more. Um, what's your view on on Bitcoin and the crypto market, and where do, where does the role of government come into play with with these sorts of things? Well, I, I mean, I suppose government has got to set up a framework to protect investors from themselves. I mean, I don't know why anyone would particularly want to go and invest in Bitcoin. I've, <laughs> You're not in it? I've, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, but if people want to throw their money and wash it down the dunny, well, let them, let them do so. I mean, they're actually making money out of it at the moment. So, but, you know, <laughs> somewhere along the line, I don't know, it'll, it'll, um, it'll all even out. Um, but, yes, I mean, if there's a, a market out there that um, – that people are engaging in, or it's worth a look at from, from a regulatory point of view, but I don't see it as a mass market. Right. I mean, there are far more important uh, discussions to be had about uh, what the fintech revolution is going to do to, to, you know, to traditional banking and how all that plays out yeah. uh, and what is the role of regulators in, in all of that and what are the frameworks for the future that protect punters uh, you know, who, who, are, who, who don't have the luxury of playing with Bitcoin, but just mm. want to make sure they protect their family finances, got a roof over their head, and they look after their kids. Uh, and the fintech revolution is going to bring, I think, some pretty substantive change to traditional banking. You know, and, and I know that's where our regulators have been looking. So, Wayne, we know we're uh, almost out of time and we're about to ask our final three questions that we ask every interview. But before I do... Um, you've sadly announced that you're not going to be recontesting the next election. Got some people. 
Start. Um, given given that you don't have to worry about re-election anymore, are there any? Um, how, how are you going to use your last uh, year and a bit in um, in politics? Are there any particular issues you're going to push um, that you may not have been able to push as hard uh, because you had to worry about re-election or anything like that? No, uh, some people have described me as unplugged, um, and and largely. Um, if you look at what the sort of things I've been doing and saying, they've been consistent since uh, basically I was re-elected in Lily in 2013 and didn't go back on the front bench. So I've been out there articulating my views based on my experiences as treasurer and my view about uh, you know what we need to do for the future of the country to, sh- to lift living standards and, and share that lifting living standards more fairly across our people. And I think it'd be fair to say I've taken on a... Um, a few topics and a, and a few individuals and a few institutions that aren't very happy with me. And I, the bad news for them is I might be getting out of parliament, but I'm not getting out of politics. And I'm going to continue to, to articulate those views because I think they're important to the future of the country. In 2012, I wrote an essay called the 0.01%, the power of vested interests uh, in Australia. I'm updating that now. Um, and I'm going to update it because I think one of our economic challenges is we can't get the essential structural reforms we need in this economy because of powerful vested interests who don't see it in their immediate economic interest uh, to to support them. And by that, I particularly mean organisations like our biggest banks and our biggest mining companies. Look forward to uh, reading your essay when it's published. It sounds um, sounds pretty interesting. So we'll... Um... Finish with a quick fire three questions that, as Alex said, we ask all of our guests uh, at the end of each interview. So to begin with, Wayne, what is a book or books that you consider a must read? Okay, well, the, the one I've, there's two books I've read recently. Uh, John Edwards's book on John Curtin, a must read for any Australian patriot. Um, and the other one um, uh, is a book by Nancy McLean called Democracy in Chains. Uh, which explains how the radical trickle-down right took control of uh, uh, politics and power in the United States over a 50-year period. All right. So flowing into that, our next question is, what is your go-to source for information? Now, this is usually framed around you know, economics and, and investing. Um, do you have a particular source that you would encourage um, our listeners to start getting around or what's your sort of source of information these days? Uh, I, I always read the Financial Times. That's my go-to on on what's really happening in economics, yeah. and and one or two columnists in the Financial Review uh, in Australia, but not its editorial. Yeah, right. Um, uh, so, but more broadly on, on on economics, I um I read pretty widely. I uh, I, I get most of the reports. You know, Shane Oliver, for example, I think is consistently good. There are many yep. others. Stuff coming out of the ComBank. I mean, just about all the bank stuff that I read is is pretty good. And I generally, it's a, a habit I had when I was treasurer and I haven't given it up, that on a Friday or whatever they, they're putting their weekly thing out, I'll have a read. Um, mm. Westpac, mm. you know, Bill Evans. I mean, I, I, I read all that or glance. I don't read it in the detail I used to, but I glance at a lot of that stuff. So mm. I would say to mm. people, don't depend on one source. Yeah, right. Uh, have a bit of a look around, and most of that stuff's readily available and easily accessible. Uh, and and they've but basically they've done it in bite-sized bits now, where you can pick it up and and get a get a handle on it. And that's what I do. Yeah, I agree. Read widely. So to finish the final three, 
is there what's one piece of advice you would give to your younger self and that could be anything yeah well, i gave it I, I said this the other day when i announced i was um not running again um uh that was that i do regret that you know during the intense period of my treasurership because basically it was consumed on first cup first few years by the crisis and then then by you know internal challenges in our party while we were trying to do carbon pricing and a whole lot of huge reforms that I didn't take more time out of that sort of fraught schedule uh, just to, to, to exercise and, and, and to think more clearly uh, about where we were. It was just such an intense period. So I think for anyone who's involved in very difficult challenges and very long work hours, which are absolutely unavoidable when you're in jobs like mine and many others, mm. just make sure you carve out a bit more time for personal exercise uh, and reflection than, than necessarily your diary uh, might give you. I like that one. That's good. And that includes family time. <laughs> so, Wayne, uh, that brings us to uh, the end of the interview. Now, just before you go, this interview has been about uh, predictions for 2018, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't finish by asking, what do you think 2018 holds for Barnaby Joyce? <laughs> Um, <laughs> you don't well, have to answer that if you don't want to. <laughs> I, no, no, I, the answer is not much. Yeah, right. Do you, do you think he'll stay as Nationals leader? No. Wow, yeah. Looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. Yep. But, um, Wayne, thank you very much for coming on Equity Mates. We really appreciated your time and um, some of the wisdom that you've given us today about sort of what's to come 2018 we're looking forward to the release of your next essay and all the best with life after politics i'm told there is one <laughs> you'll have to let us know <laughs> but yeah one thing okay. look we really appreciate it good to talk equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned this is general advice only please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation.